When Mishan traveled to the far northern region of Icewind Dale, she had thought many a poor tale would become before her. Trouble was known throughout the realm, but she had envisioned herself bringing the light of Amanator, the Morning Lord, to this dreary realm, a bastion of respite for weary travelers and residents of ten towns. Perhaps even her spirit could inspire others to see the sun regain its rightful place in the open sky over the frozen north. Not this day, it would seem. On her office table were approximately 230 pieces of gold, counted among various coinage and gems, a pair of used snowshoes, and what could generously be referred to as a poem. The paladin, John, sincerely volunteered it as payment. This, then, Mishan said, is all you have. The adventurers had been here for near a tent day, but all strangers to the region save one, it may have been too much to hope for them to bring enough payment. Jorora, the drow who came to the temple's doorstep days ago after being separated in a blizzard from her friends, simply nodded. There hasn't been all that much good loot in hag caves. She looked out of the office towards the sanctum to the body atop the altar of the Morning Lord. And we didn't have time to look around the Kair for anything valuable. Things got out of hand pretty quickly. John sat up from his chair. I'll say, a quick fight turned upside down. It's a small miracle any of us made it out of there. Please, Mishan, if you could simply find it in your heart to bring back our friend, I'd... He stopped as Drora raised a hand. You'd be doing us a favor, and out of your own pocket, we know. But maybe we can find some way down the road to pay you back. Mishan smiled, grim, and placed the small treasure into a sack too large for it all. We can worry about that later. Let us see about speaking to the Morning Lord and bringing your friend back. Outside, the weather had abated. A dim glow hung over the town of Brinshander, a small comfort as Tvesk checked the dog sled. There, and at this point, they had begun to call him Captive, the innkeeper's son, Huarwar, had given to a fitful rest after some spell work. It was no small effort to keep him quiet, but at least the hounds didn't mind the cargo. Tvesk turned over their shoulder towards Micah. Figure they're almost done in there. The cleric had more than usual been quiet since they had arrived back in Britishander. Micah simply shrugged. Who knows? Well, I'll be happy to get this one back in Bremen, the sooner the better. Tvesk clutched at their chest and leaned over. I'm gonna go in and see what's taking them. It was a difficult task to breathe and walk forward into the temple. Micah had not noticed. Inside her cloak, she palmed one of the amulets recovered from Kair Dinaval. Whether under her own bidding or another's, she could not be rid of the sensation that it spoke to her. Dark whispers, all the sweeter for the grandeur promised for her loyalty. Forsake her god for another. Nothing in all Faron made more sense in this quiet moment and the fading gleam of the street lamps. The death of a player character can be a turning point for a campaign. Perhaps the death was satisfying, a conclusion of the character's arc that would leave its intended mark on the table, one that will be recalled down the road as a worthy sacrifice or the natural progression of consequences. I've had both occur at the table, but what happened the other night in the Rime of the Frostmaiden campaign was not the one I've been talking about here. 
It was abrupt, unexpected, and threw the party's plans to the sidelines so they could resolve their current problem. How do we get the bard back? Resurrection isn't even something that happens in my homebrew since I tend to keep the access to magic on the lower end of the spectrum. Clerics aren't rare or anything, it's just that there are only a handful walking around the world at a given time that would even have the ability to bring someone back from the dead. I like how it ramps up tension, that there is almost no opportunity for a player's character to be revived if they walk into a trap or grossly overestimate their abilities. Otherwise, it can just be a quick trip to the city temple, and a hefty sum of gold to revive a previously dead party member. In the Forgotten Realms, this shit happens all the time. PCs die out in the magical wilderness, adventurers with big dreams in their heads of striking it rich, and eventually some of them won't make it back from those trips, or if they do, it'll be their cold body dragged along by their companions. Go see whoever it is that gives praise to Chantia or Ilmater or whoever your resident divine power is, slide them some shiny rocks, and boom, you're back up, and don't have to worry about making a new character sheet. It's fair to say that you should give the players an idea of what their odds of coming back from the other side are in your campaign, at least so that if they do die from what feels like out of nowhere, they won't feel doubly blindsided when you tell them that their friends better start making funeral arrangements. Luckily, being Faerunian natives, the Rhyme Breakers were able to find someone they knew who could help them out, the priest leading the Temple of Amonator in Bryn Shander, Mishan. Mishan had already met the party as the lead in for Jorora's player joining after the first session, so they were on familiar enough terms to see about getting her to resurrect Tessa. However, this being only the start of their adventure, there was something that as bold operators in the frozen north they were sorely in need of. Money. They took a look between all their sheets and were able to figure they had about some 300-odd gold pieces between them. Given that we had just started, I offered them a devil's bargain. All of their gold. Every last bit of it. In exchange for the return of Tessa, the Asimar Bard. They took it. As a group of do-gooders likely would for one of their companions, but that led to dealing with their other problem. They were broke as hell. Remember how I mentioned at the end of their adventure in East Haven that they could have an alternative reward that uh, for the loot from the cave? One of the players then asked, Hey, didn't the mayor of East Haven, what's his name, say that he was interested in taking that hag cauldron we found off our hands? Do you think he'd give us some gold for it if we headed back there? Of course he'd be interested. But I didn't need to respond with the same enthusiasm that I was feeling. There were a lot of neat things about the East Haven follow-up adventure I was keen on running. And while I didn't plan for them to head back so soon to address their monetary dilemma, I wasn't against them returning to exchange the cauldron of plenty. We'll come back to that, though. First, the party needed to head off to Bremen to drop off Fwarwar, the surprisingly belligerent son of that town's innkeeper. The party, from interacting with him, began to piece together exactly what was going on with the Knights of Black Swords, the cult to Levistus taking up residence in Kair de Naval. They put his personality down to brainwashing, which was not entirely off far or far off from the truth. His mother, Cora Mulfoon, seemed to also compliment that story after seeing her son in the state that he was in. It seemed plausible, at least, but they were left without any idea of what to do for the poor lad, and instead had to hope that an answer would come to them in time. Of course, as per the privilege of our station behind the screen, we get to know that it is an almost hopeless situation. Warwar has gotten himself into. The amulets that all the cultists wear are all corrupted by Levistus. 
Spells can detect this corruption simply enough. At dawn, the possessor of an amulet rolls a d6 for each amulet. On a 1, they make a dc10 charisma saving throw or immediately become lawful evil. It doesn't help that Jorah the cleric picked up one of these amulets off the cultist and kept it on her person since returning from the Kyir. I had the player make rolls in secret whenever the 24 hours would pass requiring them to see if they had succumbed to the effect of the Shardolin piece within the amulet. On the second day, while in Bryn Shander, they did. The book also mentions that such an effect can be broken by a curse, but after nine days, nothing short of a wish spell or divine intervention can reverse the effect. Out here in the frozen north, Jorah's players' options were limited, but thankfully they were a good sport about it, and intrigued about role-playing the sudden alignment shift. The party was keyed into that something had happened to their cleric, but wasn't sure entirely what. We'll follow up with Jorah's new worldview issues another time. I'll just say that if the players are keen on experiencing the sudden change of the characters, I say go for it. See what you can do to shake up the stability they've been experiencing so far with their development. The party was also given two more adventuring sites to visit in the future, once they finished their detour to East Haven and returned to Kair de Naval. In Bremen, they ran into a researcher looking into the mysterious creature of the lake. Without going into the details of it, the quest has the players scouring the lake for signs of the creature. So even before getting to interact with it, there's a little minigame involving them trying to find the thing in the first place. Once they do, there's a number of options on how they can interact with it, which can in turn lead the PCs to other parts of Ten Towns. In Brinshander, they learned of the Black Cabin from Copper Nobernocker, a rock gnome taking up residence in the House of the Morning Lord alongside Mishan. He hadn't heard from a friend of his in a while, Macreatus, who was working on a device to end the Frost Maiden's eternal winter. He'd appreciate it if they could pop in and see how he was doing. I do adore how, in keeping with the idea of the sandbox, there's so many opportunities for you to clue your players in to the happenings of Icewind Dale. It gives that impression of the world being alive, events happening around them, and so static a place that just waits for them to walk into the map. Whether you're progressing things without them being present or offering them new avenues of exploration, it helps to include details such as this to aid in your campaign's believability. I didn't think we'd be back here so soon, Tessa said, none the worse for her brush with death. At least it's more civilized than Kair de Naval. I can actually find a place to rest and get decent food, Tavesk said. To be fair, we didn't meet the folk of Kair de Naval at their best, Jorora said. Again, still one of the better welcomes I've received. She turned to look at the dog sled behind them and their new companion, Alisar, who drove it forward. They had replaced the innkeeper's son with their cauldron of plenty, sequestered beneath a tarp but unmistakable in its shape. Do you think Danith would still be interested? The speaker? Sure, I don't see why not. Hard to find anything like this easily, even without. Tavesk trailed off and circled an open palm above their head. From what I heard, he's good people too, and not without means. Jorora laughed. I can't imagine any of the speakers are without means. I just hope that means he has deep pockets to pay for this. Wouldn't mind a little bonus either, given the trouble we've been through. It's not like I was looking to die in some disgusting gatehouse, Tessa said. And maybe you would have haggled a little better with the priest, gotten a better deal that didn't leave us flat broke. I was just talking about the caves, 
But if you want to turn this into being about you, then we can. Tessa went silent and said, No, that's all right. Let's just go see the speaker about the cauldron. The Rhinebreckers kept quiet until reaching the town hall and were greeted by an eager clerk. Right this way, she said. I'm sure Speaker Daneth Whalen would be happy to make time for you. So the party had a couple leads to follow up on and a shift in alignment for one of the people in charge of keeping them up in a fight, but now they decided to head back to East Haven to meet with Speaker Daneth Whalen about selling the Cauldron of Plenty. What's nice about this section, which the book refers to as the Town Hall Capers, is that it's actually a twofer, which is something I completely forgot about until I started working on this script. You get one adventure for the party selling the Cauldron to the Speaker and another where the Dwergar in town, including Zardarok's son, attempt to seal some pieces from the Chardolin ship figurehead in the back room. You can run one, both, or neither at various points in the adventure. If the party stumbles onto what's happening in the Dale some other way, that's great. Again, this is just a nice way to pad out the other elements of the story in various places so that eventually the party comes across the sinister undercurrent awaiting them in further chapters. Bonus fun fact. The ship's figurehead can also be interacted when they just visit the town hall, separate from the quests. Also, turns out the white lady ghost is real, and she's haunting the hell out of the place, which is neat. The Rhymebreakers strike a quick deal with Danith, even going, uh, even getting enough of a persuasion roll to receive double the payment with some gemstones alongside the coins. It does require him to take some time to put together 1,000 gold pieces, but given how things are going for them, the party is more than happy to wait. They were free to wait at the inn, but they made the wise decision to stay put at the town hall to keep an eye on their paycheck, so to speak. The speaker is more than amenable to this. He's a good man, all things considered, and the party's done right by East Haven so far. Turns out, some of the other town speakers are not. Recall the creepy guy with the tiny dragon in the tavern of Targos, speaker Maxildenar? It's revealed he's part of the Zentarim a faction of mercenaries operating in the greater Farron continent, known for being not good people. They've got their own network of spies even up this far, and turns out that Prudence, the East Haven tall, eh, town hall clerk, is one of their agents. She immediately sends word to Targos about the cauldron, and three thrugs arrive post-haste to steal it from under Daneth Whalen's nose. They get so far as walking down to the hold and getting into close-quarters combat with the Rhymebreakers, and after the fight... At the gatehouse in Kair de Naval, they feel sharp and ready to take down some low-level criminals. They get the information out from one of the thugs, and while Daneth Whalen is surprised by Prudence's betrayal, the cauldron is still in his possession, and he gladly exchanges payment with the party. Overall, not a bad night for them, all things considered. One player back from the dead, two new quest leads to follow up on, and some juicy gossip about a prominent leader of ten towns, in their pockets a collective 1,000 gold pieces heavier. For now, though, they have one place in mind to head next. It's back to Kair Dinaval to rid the town of the Black S- Knights of the Black Sword and get a uh, get payback for the other evening. And I think that's where we'll leave it off for this episode. 
Thanks for tuning in to the DM Discourse as we continue towards the early end of our Rhyme of the Frostmaiden campaign. If you like the show, drop a review on wherever it is that you're getting podcasts from. Um, feel free to hit me up at on Twitter at DMDC Podcast and tell folks that you think would be interested in the show about it. I, I want to know what y'all are interested in hearing. Uh, in the meantime, y'all take care. Love y'all. Have a great week.